0: From the eruption of Vesuvius to COVID-19, catastrophes have changed the course of history. On today's podcast, you'll be hearing from the historian Neil Ferguson, whose book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, asks what we can learn from historical disasters in order to tackle future crises. At the end of April 2021, Matt Elton spoke to Neil to find out more. He began by asking when Neil started working on the book, which has turned out to be unexpectedly timely.
2: I'd been wanting to write a history of dystopia, of, of the end of the world, for some time, certainly before the advent of, of COVID-19. And i have been trying to persuade my editors in New York and London that it would be Really interesting for for a historian to write about science fiction, about the history of the ways that, that people have imagined uh, the end of the world or something approximating to it. So that was sort of where I was going in 2019, because I felt that the approach I had taken for so many years, which was to think really 100% about history and not at all about science fiction, was leaving something out. Science fiction is very good at imagining technological change or or historical discontinuity before it happens so i I'd, I'd gone back to science fiction and was madly reading uh, all kinds of different authors margaret atwood and then uh, in in january i suddenly realized oh it's it's the end of the world it's a it's one of those pandemics that i've been reading about in multiple books and so i came back to my editors who up until this point, it must be said, had been unconvinced. And I said, now, now I can write the book I want to write, but it's going to be a history, a general history of disaster, not just a history of of pandemics and not just a history of imagined dystopias, but a kind of com- comprehensive history of, of disaster.
4: Mm. And reading the newspaper front pages today, there's stories of icebergs melting, climate change, pandemics. Have we always, as humans, being fascinated by our own our, our own doom, I suppose.
2: It's clear that we have, because it's there in almost all the world religions, uh, that there is some kind of apocalyptic denouement. Uh, even in those that imagine some kind of cyclical process, it, it, there's a catastrophe before there's rebirth. And uh, in Christianity and Islam, there's, there's an end. There's uh, an end day, an end time. And I I think that tells us something that that is important, which is that we are fascinated by the idea of the end. The end of the species, the end of the planet, the end of the universe. And that fascination means that we slightly exaggerate the probability of the end of of the world and jump to the conclusion that we're experiencing it when when even a medium-sized disaster happens. So yeah, this seems to be quite deeply embedded in the human psyche. And, and I think watching how people responded to the beginning of the pandemic uh, really confirmed that hypothesis. I was fascinated to read that people were kind of sitting under lockdown conditions in New York watching the movie Contagion, you know, kind of secretly wanting this to be even more catastrophic than it was.
4: Do you think that we as humans have trouble conceptualising what an actual disaster will mean for us? That sense of thinking that we will definitely survive and somehow enjoying that scenario.
2: Well, there's a wonderful song that I'd known of, but had never really traced the history of, uh, The Bells of Hell. And it turns out that this song originated as a parody of a Salvation Army hymn sung by Tommy's on the Western Front during the First World War, and it goes, The bells of hell go ting a ling for you but not for me. Oh, death, where is thy sting a ling a grave thy victory. Which is a good example of how the British like to laugh at death and how gallows humor is a very big part of of, of our culture and of other cultures too. But I think this, this captures an important truth that if you were uh, a soldier, if you are a soldier, this seems particularly true of young men. You, you know that there's some risk uh, of death or terrible injury, but you kind of think it's going to happen to the other guy and not to you. And that, that I think, is, is a very profound psychological quirk, too, that we aren't very good at applying probabilities of death to ourselves, uh, especially when we're young and feel invulnerable, even immortal, hence a lot of reckless behaviour over the last uh, year and a bit, uh, by younger people who not wholly without reason thought that they weren't at risk, uh, but acted like there was zero risk when there was clearly some.
4: Before we go any further, we should talk about the kinds of disaster that you talk about in your book, because you call them a special class of rare, large-scale disaster. So what kind of things are we talking about there?
2: Well, I decided to try to capture disaster in all its forms. The bulk of the book is about large-scale disasters which claim a lot of lives. Uh, what I'm looking for is excess mortality, a lot of premature deaths, deaths that, that happen sooner than would otherwise have been the case. And that can happen through all kinds of different uh, forms of disaster, ranging from the ones we think of as natural... Uh, volcanic eruptions, think Vesuvius, uh, or huge earthquakes, uh, or terrible wildfires, or floods or droughts, uh, all of those things. They can also happen because of what we think of as man-made disasters, in particular wars. The big killers historically have been very large pandemics uh, and very large wars. And those are the things that really kind of get you up to significant percentages of of humanity. Uh, But I wanted to make a point about disaster, which I think is quite important. And that is that some things strike us as disasters, even when relatively few people are killed. I mean, the space shuttle Challenger blows up. uh, The only people killed are the crew. And yet it, it looms very large and in American memory, as as a disaster. The Titanic is one of the most famous disasters, even although, actually, there have been shipping disasters in which more people have been killed than in the Titanic. But it's just become a kind of... Uh, uh, very memorable disaster. So we don't always remember things, as it were, in proportion to the death toll. Uh, so w- what's difficult for historians about disasters, which we tend to study, I mean, a lot of historians dedicate their lives to studying particular forms of disaster, war war in particular. The problem is that disasters don't seem to come in any predictable way. They strike either randomly in terms of timing and scale or in some cases things like earthquakes there's the power law distribution which is very different from a normal distribution you know the human height is normally distributed little accidents car accidents are normally distributed this is sort of average one of those and we can attach probabilities to your chance and my chance of being in a car accident this year. But it's not like that for earthquakes, and it's not like that for wars. Uh, and so that that's a really interesting puzzle that I've thought a lot about over the years. It makes almost any attempt at a cyclical theory of history doomed to fail, because there are just these apparently random endogenous and exogenous disasters that happen. And I'll make one other point at the risk of giving an overlong answer It hit me as I was writing the book that the distinction between a man-made and a natural disaster is actually a false dichotomy because, and this is a point, interestingly, that the economist Amartya Sen made about famines a long time ago, that that actually kind of man-made. It really is human agency that determines how far a crop failure leads to mass starvation. But this applies more generally. I think, for example, a massive volcano erupting on a deserted island is a different kind of thing from one that erupts next to a crowded metropolis. And so it's, it's human decisions about the location of cities that explain a lot of Uh, the big disasters in history, there are a lot of cities, especially in Asia, in pretty dangerous places where there is a pretty uh, significant risk of uh, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, tsunamis, and things like that. And that's why the subtitle of the book is The Politics of Catastrophe, because whether we think of it as natural or man-made, all disasters are ultimately politically mediated. It's really political decisions that, that determine how high the body count will be, even if the point of origin is something like a novel pathogen or a geological convulsion.
4: And we'll get on to some of the responses in a minute because it's fascinating. Before we go any further, when you say endogenous and exogenous, what do we mean by those terms?
2: Sorry, fancy professor speak uh, there. I mean, if you think of uh, uh, an exogenous disaster, a pretty good example would be an asteroid hitting the Earth. Uh, or some extraterrestrial shock. There hasn't been a really big asteroid for ages, luckily for us, but of course uh, there there was one that seems to have pretty much done the dinosaurs in, so we know that it can happen. Uh, An endogenous disaster would be a war in which humanity collectively decides to engage in in mass slaughter for some period of time. And, and so I wanted to show that when we're trying to think about disaster, we, we should recognize that there are, are clearly some forms of disaster that that are, are our fault. And that's why this argument about climate change is so interesting, because for the first time, we're really contemplating climatic disasters due to mankind's activity, whereas, whereas there have been past periods of, of major changes in temperature and climate, but they weren't really our fault. They were caused, for example, by volcanic eruptions. So, so we're we're having a debate about one particular form of disaster at the moment, and I worry that we think too much about that one, man-made climate change, and not enough about all the others. Uh, there There are four horsemen of the apocalypse, not one. And I suspect that in truth, when you finish reading Doom, you'll realise that there are more than four horsemen after us, and they they do come in a whole bunch of, of of forms. So when we were spending a lot of time in the last few years talking about climate change, right up to and including January uh, twenty twenty, we were distinctly underestimating the the risk of a pandemic to the point that the pandemic had begun uh, at the World Economic Forum. It had, it was underway by the time I was. At Davos in January 2020, there were even people from Wuhan on the list of delegates, but nobody was talking about it because it hadn't sunk in in mid-January that this was going to be a global pandemic. Even though I was absolutely sure that it was.
4: One of the many fascinating threads of your book is um, an exploration of networks and network theory, and how this makes how this helps us make sense of. This subject. Can you just talk us through, for people who might not know, what we talk about when we talk about networks in this sense?
2: Well, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Square and the Tower, which was designed to explain to history-minded people how network science is relevant to what we do, which is to study the human past. Earlier in my career, I used terms like network rather casually. Uh, in the last few years, I've tried to educate myself so that I have a better understanding of, of the theory that, that is uh, at the heart of network science. And the key really is that contagion uh, of various forms, whether it's contagion due to some novel coronavirus or contagion because some crazy idea, some piece of fake news goes viral. Contagion is a function of of two things. the The pathogen or the item of fake news, the meme, if you like, itself, and the network structure that it attacks. Social networks, and we're all in them, are, in fact, rather strange things when you come to graph them because they're not like lattices. In a lattice, each uh, of the nodes uh, has the same number of edges, the same number of links to other nodes. But social networks aren't like that. Uh, If you look at the social network of, say, Facebook or uh, or Twitter a, a relatively small number of nodes have an enormous number of edges i.e there are there are some people who just have tons of followers and there are lots of people who have hardly any uh, and that's that's one of the peculiar features of of social networks um, I'm drawing here on the work of of people like glaslo barabasi who's written some brilliant stuff explaining what can be quite mathy uh, to lay people like me who don't speak fluent, maths anymore. So when you think about the world not as a bunch of org charts, you know, of hierarchies in which there's the president or the prime minister at the top, and then there are the lowly mortals down below, but if you think of it not like that, but actually as a as a social network with all these peculiar structural features, understanding contagion becomes much easier because, to take the case of COVID-19... This was a very interesting virus that was spread by a minority of infected people, the super spreaders. Uh, So roughly speaking, 20% of of infected people did 80% of the spreading. And if the virus got to a super-spreader individual, somebody with lots and lots of social life, or if it got to a super-spreader situation in which lots of people came together, then it would take off in one geography much faster than in places where that didn't happen, which explains why the incidence of this pandemic has been so patchy and varied so much from place to place uh, and from, from stage to stage. So I think network science is one of these things that needs to be in the historian's toolkit, you you can't really understand a plague and you can't understand a religious or political revolution until you see that in each case you're dealing with with contagion. And networks behave in ways that are not wholly in, intuitive. That There's, there's for example, uh, this strange phenomenon of homophily where birds of a feather flock together. So in the network, people cluster together according to similar ideas or similar characteristics. Or there's the tendency, because of that, for networks to kind of polarize uh, uh, in politics, for example, into two very clearly defined clusters. That's certainly true in the United States today. So all of these properties of networks, which I tried to write about in The Square and The Tower, are hugely relevant to understanding disasters, because some disasters have contagion, certainly pandemics do, uh, and others don't. I mean, most disasters are localised. A volcano has to be of colossal size to impact that network uh, that is the world's climatic system. And most of the volcanic eruptions that have happened in the last 200 years haven't been that big, so we haven't really had a, a global disaster from volcanic activity for a very long time. It can happen. Uh, and in the same way, a lot of uh, uh, of conflicts are localised. Uh, they can be hideously destructive and have a very high mortality rate, but it's between two countries or it's in just one geography. But a few uh, conflicts have this quality of contagion where the ideas that are mobilizing people to fight, whether it's Bolshevism and the Russian Civil War or fascism later, these ideologies create enormous conflicts. And that's partly because the idea is spreading like a kind of virus of the mind.
4: It's really interesting in your book, because we don't often think of the 14th and 15th centuries, for instance, as being this hugely networked world. But the worst pandemic in human history was the Black Death of the 14th century. Was that spread by these networks?
2: The answer is yes. And that's why uh, it spread so rapidly uh, when it got to Western Europe. Uh, It had spread... Uh, we're beginning to understand rather slowly from East Asia through Central Asia because the social networks there in the, in the uh, uh, 14th century uh, and indeed in the 13th century when this began were relatively sparse. But once you get to Northern Italy uh, or England, which by that time were already quite densely populated places in relative terms with lots of trade, uh, lots of towns, uh, also sites of pilgrimage, and therefore lots of mobility along relatively well-maintained uh, roads uh, as well as uh, navigable rivers. You've got a, a, a network that is is ready to spread uh, the the virus, or in the case of the Black Death, uh, the bacillus. Now, it's it's a complicated story because uh, this is not something that's just passed from uh, person to person. It requires fleas and rats to cause a a pandemic of of bubonic and uh, and then also pneumonic plague. Uh, So you kind of have to understand a little bit about uh, the social networks of these animals. But the fact is that they uh, were able to travel along trade routes quite readily, uh, both the rats uh, and the fleas. Uh, uh, Indeed, the fleas could sort of uh, hibernate in uh, chests full of cloth for a re- remarkably long time. So trade trade routes are hugely important, and explain why it's commercial centres. If you look at the Italian case, the are devastated. It's the it's the places where there's lots of trade going on that really are wiped out uh, when when the Black Death uh, hits hits Europe. So yeah, at first this seemed a little counterintuitive to me because if you look at the political map of Europe in the 1340s, it's at its most fragmented. This is not your Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had experienced some really big plagues, uh, which kind of made intuitive sense. Here's this giant integrated thing called the Empire. And of course, it's going to be a place that causes uh, various forms of of pathogen to spread. But it turns out that even although Europe was very politically fragmented, the networks of trade and pilgrimage uh, were actually really thriving. And that's how it spread
4: you also write about the sort of social extreme behaviour that was caused by the Black Death. Do you think disasters tend to provoke extreme behaviours of the people around them?
2: Yes, they do. And that seems to be one of the obvious lessons of 2020 as well. If you put society under great strain with the sudden surge of, of excess mortality and the fear that goes with that and then... The measures, the abnormal measures that have to be taken to try to limit the spread of uh, the disease, that you create a, a very uh, tense, uh, febrile uh, cultural uh, atmosphere. And so when you look back at, at what happened in Europe after the uh, onset of the Black Death, uh, a couple of very striking phenomena uh, occurred. There are these extraordinary flagellant orders that, that roam around Europe. These are uh, men who flog themselves publicly, engaging in acts of uh, often very masochistic penance, to try to ward off further divine retribution. So so that's one, and the other is, is that there are these outbreaks of anti-Semitic violence, pogroms against Jewish communities who are blamed. Uh, for for the plague, I was reminded of of those two phenomena when I was watching the very extraordinary a- activities of the summer of twenty twenty in the United States that, that followed the the murders, as it, it has now been confirmed uh, of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin in, in in Minneapolis. To most people, this just looked like political protest. To my eyes, it seemed like just the kind of uh, eruption uh, that you'd anticipate in a time of, of, of plague. And it, it was expiation. So I, I felt as if I'd kind of stumbled into a reenactment of, uh, of Norman Cohn's The Pursuit of the Millennium, a wonderful book about the flagellant movement that I remember reading years and years ago when I was an undergraduate.
4: So you think that the the protests took on a different form than they would have done had they not occurred during a pandemic?
2: Absolutely. I I think it's very hard to believe that the protests would have been on anything like the scale that we saw uh, had it not been for the extraordinary circumstances of the the pandemic, the failure to control it, the lockdowns, the the pent-up frustrations of uh, urban populations that have been trapped uh, in their in their homes for uh, weeks on end. All of that, I think, contributed to the scale of the the protest. Now, I think one has to recognise that it's not an entirely logical thing that, in the midst of a pandemic, you should have mass protests about the question of of police brutality and and racism. That 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 seems, if you sort of view it from a distance, like a bit of a non sequitur, and indeed a not entirely prudent thing to do when there is a. a respiratory disease spreading rapidly. Though though it turned out, interestingly, that the protests didn't lead to increased case numbers in the places where they happened because, it turns out, because people worried about violence at the protests stayed at home and sheltered in place even more. So, oddly enough, the, the net impact of the protests was somewhat to reduce overall mobility rather than to increase the spread of the virus. In any case, it doesn't spread outdoors nearly as much as it spreads indoors. So that that was one reason not to expect a great wave of infections. Uh, But this kind of thing for me as an historian is fascinating because there are these strong echoes uh, of uh, the the febrile mood uh, that that accompanied previous pandemics. There were anti-mask protests in San Francisco during the 1918-19 influenza pandemic. Uh, and, and if one looks back at that time, and that was a much, much worse pandemic with a much higher death toll, perhaps 40 times higher in terms of the share of global population killed, you can see some of the same uh, anxieties that then percolate into politics until a point is reached that people have sort of had enough and want normality really badly. And I think that that's another historical analogy that I found interesting, that in the 1920 election, a hundred years before the 2020 election, the winning candidate campaigned on a platform of normalcy, back to normalcy, and I think that that was what worked for Warren Harding, and it worked for Joe Biden last year.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Lurking in all disasters, there is the obscure figure on, you know, the third floor in the in that office, uh, whose name nobody can quite remember. and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Met Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
4: We should talk about governance because that's another key theme of your book. Um, do you think that governance of disasters generally has got worse? And I'm really interested that you hold up Eisenhower's response to a disaster as being this exemplar of how to do it. Can you talk us through what he did and whether or not you think things have got worse since then?
2: Well, first, I think there's a general problem that has been uh, obvious for some time with the way that governments generally in the democratic world perform. Uh, In a book called The Great Degeneration, which is now more than 10 years old, I argued that there had been a sort of degeneration uh, of 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 government, uh, it had become excessively bureaucratic, uh, very very costly, uh, and extremely good at generating regulation, much of which, in fact, was counterproductive. So that that's an argument that I've made. Francis Fukuyama has made it recently. Uh, Mark Andreessen, one of the titans of Silicon Valley, has made a similar argument. There's a whole debate uh, about why government has become so dysfunctional over the last 20 or so years. Maybe it's a longer time frame than that, but one has the sense that there has been a kind of uh, growing, and yet uh, in terms of efficacy-shrinking state, maybe since the the 1970s. Okay, along comes a, a pandemic. On paper, the United States is the best prepared country in the world, and the UK is up there near the top two. Any number of documents by any number of agencies have a pandemic preparedness plan. There's an enormous number of people whose job this is, including uh, a Deputy Secretary for Pandemic Preparedness at the Department of Health and Human Services. And yet, when the rubber hits the road and there actually is a pandemic, none of it works. In fact, things go horribly awry at the beginning. Whereas in Taiwan and in South Korea and a bunch of other countries, they are ready to ramp up testing. They are ready to uh, have electronic contact tracing and they can use technology to quarantine infected people. None of that happens in the United States or in the United Kingdom. Instead, everybody sits around through January and February saying, oh, well, it'll be like influenza. Uh, We don't really need to do anything except just get to herd immunity. And then there's panic in mid-March when it suddenly realized that if they do that, a really large number of people could die. Let's rewind the tape to 1957. Now, the 57-58 influenza pandemic was globally about as bad. Uh, In the US, not as bad. And I think this is important to bear in mind. So it's not a perfect like-for-like comparison, and nor, of course, are the viruses exactly similar. It was a different kind of uh, respiratory disease, but it's still, I think, instructive to compare how the Eisenhower administration responded, because at the beginning, they knew no more about how bad it would be than, than we knew in January 2020, how bad COVID would be. The health experts said to Eisenhower, we can't stop this spreading. It's just going to spread. Uh, there's no point shutting down schools or declaring an emergency. Uh, we're just going to have to accept that there's going to be excess mortality and let's get a vaccine as fast as we possibly can. That's what we have to focus on. And that's what they did. It's it's not true that there's something unprecedented about how quickly we found vaccines for COVID. They found the vaccine for the so-called Asian flu in 57 even faster, and they rolled it out incredibly rapidly. Uh, and that was it. They didn't um, lock down anything. Uh, they spent a fraction of the, a tiny fraction of the money that the federal government has spent in the last year. Uh, and the economy basically kept going without missing a beat. There was a recession. It had nothing to do with the pandemic, it was very mild. And you can't see the pandemic in the economic data at all. So, what does this tell us? I think, firstly, it wasn't as if we could just have done that last year. And it would be naive to make that argument, though some people did. If we had basically taken that approach, there would have been a much higher uh, death toll, maybe, maybe a million people in the United States as opposed to half a million. And that's not really the the moral of the story. The the moral of the story is that the federal government in 2020 should have been much more like Taiwan and South Korea than it, it was. Uh, and uh, and that's the first point I'd make. The second point is, it's clear that the society of 1957 was not only younger, probably fitter, certainly slimmer, but also in other ways more resilient. There was excess mortality. It affected young people as well as old people. And that's a really important difference. In fact, teenagers were really quite hard hit in 57. Uh, and and yet, uh, life went on. And that, I think, was because there was an expectation and acceptance of uh, of risk that was quite different uh, in that time than in our own time. This uh, was a population that had been through World War II, been through the Depression before that, been through the Korean War, had had still battles with polio to fight. And I think uh, there was a kind of greater uh, social cohesion in the, the mid-1950s. So that the event, which, as I said, globally killed about the same share of the population as have been killed by COVID so far, has been forgotten. Nobody writes about it. I I hadn't heard about it until Nicholas Christakis at Yale drew it to my attention uh, near the beginning of the pandemic. And and that, I think, is a fascinating insight into how differently uh, we used to cope with this kind of of a public health threat. I'll add a final point. Even if you'd wanted to, in 1957, you could not have locked down because most people couldn't have worked from home. Whereas these days, about a third of people can do what we're doing now. We do our jobs if we want to at, at home. That wasn't an option in 1957. A very large number of people still didn't have phone lines Uh, never mind the internet, which of course didn't exist. So we had an option in 2020 that really didn't exist before to confine people to their homes and shut the economy down. But that option had to be exercised with considerable cost because we'd flunked the opening phase of the pandemic in a way that I think if Dwight Eisenhower were here, uh, he would not have done.
4: So this is interesting. So even though we're talking about Eisenhower's government and the responses of today, it sounds like what we're saying is it wasn't necessarily up to him as a leader or the leaders of today that caused this to go well or not well. It was about how the system responded to the disaster. Is, is that right?
2: Absolutely right. I think I think there's a mistaken idea which is very popular uh, with journalists that You can blame all the excess mortality in the US in the past year on on Donald Trump and all the excess mortality in the UK on Boris Johnson. And I call this the the Tolstoy fallacy. In, In War and Peace, my favorite book, Tolstoy has great fun at Napoleon's expense, showing that Napoleon had this delusion that it was all about him. And that's why 1812 happened. And Tolstoy keeps telling us, no, no, what's going on? in this extraordinary upheaval where uh, hundreds of thousands of of Frenchmen sort of invade Russia and and engage in, in violent acts. This is not simply because one man ordered it. I think that's a really important insight. And it comes back to the point we were discussing earlier about networks. The truth about government is that it's not one individuals sitting at the top of the pyramid, handing out edicts. That's certainly not how the government of the United States works, because by design, the powers of the president are circumscribed. Uh, By design, it's a federal system. A lot of the decisions actually had to be taken at, at the state level. And more importantly, perhaps, with a problem like a pandemic, any president or prime minister uh, doesn't sit reading the science journals trying to assess the infection fatality rate, uh, the The president's job is not to do that. The president has experts uh, and a bureaucracy whose one job it is to deal with the public health emergency of this sort. Uh, there, there even was an undersecretary, a deputy secretary rather, of pandemic preparedness. Uh, and the failure, I think, that we want to attribute to Trump or to Johnson not to say that they got everything right. They made a great many mistakes. Uh, and this is not to defend their conduct. Uh, Trump, in particular, did very poorly. But in truth, the failure was further down the chain of command. The, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, really screwed up. And that was why uh, the, the response to the pandemic in the US was, was so very unsatisfactory dithering around until mid-March, then lurching into lockdowns with all kinds of unintended uh, consequences. It was a very disastrous performance. And it's not unreasonable to criticise it when you could see it being done right in countries like Taiwan and South Korea that were much closer geographically to the epicentre of of the pandemic.
4: So uh, extending this uh, line of of thought, if we're to explore... Um, another type of disaster, so the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, for instance, which we often think of as being caused by a very specific society and culture at a particular point in time. Can we say that actually this is part of this pattern as well?
2: Yeah, I think Chernobyl is a really interesting case. And watching the dramatisation uh, in that excellent television series recently made me think about it again, because there is a kind of uh, story that that is told in the television series that Chernobyl exemplified the chronic mendacity, the lies of the Soviet system, and that's really the moral of the story. Except that I think the United States only narrowly missed having Chernobyl with uh, Three Mile Island. Uh, th- the differences. Uh, between the two cases are somewhat fewer than the resemblances in the way that ultimately uh the the reactors in in both cases uh malfunctioned because the people operating them did not actually have a completely good understanding of uh the technology and the technology itself was not brilliantly designed uh to to uh to check itself, to correct itself in the case of, uh, of a malfunction. So I think we shouldn't tell ourselves a naive story that Chernobyl could only have happened in the Soviet Union. What I think is true is that we witnessed a kind of Chernobyl in Wuhan in December, January, in December, 2019, January, 2020, in much the same way as happened in Chernobyl the officials' first impulse, the Communist Party officials' first impulse when the disaster struck, was to cover it up and resist uh, uh, releasing information to the public and to the rest of the world. And that—that's clearly what happened again uh, in in Wuhan with terrible consequences. Because until they finally came clean and stopped people from leaving Wuhan, which wasn't until January the twenty third, the virus was spreading. Uh, all over the world without any real uh, real check. So we'll look back, I think, and say COVID was a super Chernobyl. Relatively few people died as a result of Chern- Chernobyl. I mean, this, this surprised me when I did the research. It's actually not that deadly a disaster, despite what you might uh, hear from anti-nuclear activists. Amazingly, relatively few people died Uh, even in the immediate uh, disaster and and in its subsequent aftermath. Whereas 3 million plus people have died as a result of of COVID-19, a far, far, far greater death toll, but from somewhat similar origins. Mm.
4: To draw some of these themes together, um, what factors do you think are key in a society responding well to a disaster? And are there particular examples of catastrophes that you think have been handled well?
2: Well we talked a bit about 1957 that 58 and we've talked about how brilliantly Taiwan handled COVID-19 11 people have died in Taiwan of the disease 11 so there are examples in the book of 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 success and i think the general takeaway is that it is better to be generally paranoid than very specifically prepared because you can be very specifically prepared for the wrong disaster, and you generally don't get the disaster that you're preparing for. That That's one of the themes of a later chapter when I look at how each president, beginning with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, kind of got a different disaster from the one uh, that he was prepared for. And, and this gives a, a history its ironical quality. I think we are preparing Uh, or at least talking about preparing uh, for climate change, to the exclusion of other disaster scenarios. And we've already been given one slap in the face, namely COVID-19, which by the standards of past pandemics is still a medium-sized disaster. Uh, You know, what next? I I don't think that we're going to get from here to the end of my life with only climate change to worry about, there are a whole bunch of different forms that disaster can take much faster than uh, the disaster of climate change. To give one example, war. A war between the United States and China, which is something that has become a good deal more likely in the last few years, would be an immediate uh, uh, and deadly disaster if it escalated, as I think it might well, uh, to the nuclear level. So I think that the takeaway, that the lesson is, and this is, I think, exemplified by Taiwan, uh, it's better to be generally paranoid and ready for disaster in all its forms and, and to be ready to act quickly, to react quickly, than to have a 36-page pandemic preparedness plan with accompanying PowerPoint deck that doesn't actually work when the point of contact with the enemy uh, occurs. And I By chance was in Taiwan right at the beginning of all this. I was there uh, for the first time in January 2020 and was really impressed by what I saw, particularly the way in which under the leadership of Audrey Tang, they've, they've used technology to make government more accountable to individual citizens and to empower citizens. It's just amazingly impressive and innovative stuff. And it turned out that that really, really was the key to their success when the pandemic came along. They didn't believe... Beijing, when, when the official view was, no, there's no human-to-human transmission, they were paranoid. They, they, they just rightly assumed that that was untrue and got moving. So I think uh, we need to change the culture in our bureaucracy, and I don't just mean the public health bureaucracy, I think more generally, and get away from this tendency to, t- to treat risk as something that you manage with enormously detailed plans. Uh that ultimately render you myopic. The best thing is to be anti-fragile. Best of all, you actually are strengthened by a crisis. Nick's best is to be resilient so at least you don't fall apart. It is no accident that three countries that handled this crisis really well, Taiwan, South Korea, and Israel, if you leave aside that they had a really uh, bad outbreak or a couple of bad outbreaks but otherwise they handled brilliantly, Uh, vaccination. If you you look at those countries, what do they have in common? And the answer is that they have reasons to be paranoid. They are uh, menaced by their neighbors, and they don't know what form the menace is going to take. And that's, I think, why, by and large, they were very quick uh, on the draw, and we were sitting around, uh, you know, looking at 36-page pandemic preparedness plans instead of getting testing to be ramped up. I mean, the, the the best illustration of what went wrong in the United States was not all the idiotic things that Trump said. It was the fact that it was harder to get tests for COVID. Got steadily harder over time because of the way CDC mismanaged that process. And I, thinking I might have the d- d- damn disease, was trying to find out and I couldn't get tested here on the campus of Stanford, one of the world's greatest universities. You couldn't get tested, even though we knew, you know, how to do it. It was actually a really massive bureaucratic fail. And uh, much as one would love to, to blame it on Donald Trump, it's hard to see that he was responsible for that.
4: First of all, having explored this history and mindful of what we talked about the challenges of predicting the future, how do you think COVID will change sort of the geopolitical makeup of the world?
2: I think the the naive reading as it was unfolding was... China's winning this because China very quickly got the spread of the disease under control, and we completely failed to uh but actually i think I think it may be the other way around I think China did itself great harm not only because of the way it tried to cover up the origins. Uh, of the pandemic, but also because of the way they then tried to sort of bend the narrative with this very aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy. If you if you look at attitudes towards the Chinese government around the world, not only in the U.S., everywhere they've got a lot more negative. And despite doing its usual uh, initial uh, mess, the United States uh, got its act together when it came to vaccination, and it, and the Western vaccines turned out to be much much more. Uh, efficacious than the chinese or for that matter the russian so i think in truth uh on net this has do- done china significant harm and we probably underestimate the the, the costs and, and consequences of the pandemic for china's economy which has uh not only got a demographic headwind and a debt headwind but it now has the headwind that uh people are still nervous. I mean, after all, they they haven't been vaccinated to any great extent, and therefore there's a very large virgin population that vulnerable to any of the new variants that happen to get into China. So I think that's, that's point one. I think point two is that Cold War II, which I began writing about uh, long before the pandemic, Cold War II has definitely intensified, uh, and the change of administration in the US hasn't, hasn't changed that. In fact, if anything, the biden administration is talking tougher on a range of issues like hong kong, xinjiang and taiwan than its predecessor did so geopolitically i think we're we're as much in cold war as as the united states and the soviet union were in 1957 which was not only a pandemic year but the the sputnik year uh, so that i think is the way to think about this geopolitically of course as in the cold war there are a whole bunch of states that would like to be non-aligned and those include Germany or indeed maybe the majority of of European countries. So it's going to be a complex challenge for the Biden administration if it wants to line up European countries in the way that they lined up on the American side in Cold War One. I. I think a lot of a lot has changed since then. And this and this Cold War will will be different in a, in a whole bunch of ways, one of which I think will be the role of Europe.
4: Mm. Finally, are there any other historical non-pandemic examples that we've not talked about that we probably should have done?
2: Well, I think the one point that I'm a little bit in love with is that all disasters are the same, a bit like Tolstoy's happy families, regardless of scale. And that at the heart of the, the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster was the same recurrent feature of disasters through the ages that that the problem wasn't really at the top it was with middle management at nasa the the engineers knew there was a one percent probability the damn thing would blow up because of leaking fuel uh but the bureaucrats turned that into one in a hundred thousand because they didn't want to slow down the program and i think lurking in all disasters there is the obscure figure on you know the third floor in the in that office uh whose name nobody can quite remember, who's sort of getting it wrong. Uh, uh, and I I find that a kind of fascinating thought. It's it's the same when you look at military disasters. It wasn't as if Churchill personally was to blame for the fall of Singapore. Uh, even the, the, the Gallipoli disaster, when you look closely at it, wasn't uh, straightforwardly Churchill's fault, as we tend to think. So I, I find it important Whatever kind of disaster we're discussing, whether it's a global pandemic or the sinking of a ship, we need to recognize that the point of failure is quite often somewhere in the middle, and that the the failure of, of middle management, of bureaucracy, is a recurrent leitmotif through the ages. We need to learn about that dysfunctional quality of quite hierarchical bureaucracies, because... Until we have something much more nimble, which I think they've successfully built in Taiwan, much more responsive to, to changing circumstances and much more also much more open to input from people, these disasters are going to keep happening. And we can't stop disasters from happening, but we can manage them a whole lot better than we managed COVID-19.
0: That was Neil Ferguson. His book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is on sale now, published by Alan Lane. Matt spoke to Neil for the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on Black Death Fortune Hunters, the Cuban Missile Crisis and Secrets of Prehistoric Britain. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Titanic.